Greetings, SE land. This is Twig, Anthony Twig Wheeler, here with another episode of Twig's SE Reflections podcast. This is an audio archive created specifically for somatic experiencing students and practitioners and other helping professionals who are incorporating the somatic healing arts and psychobiological information found in the new traumatology, polyvagal theory, things like that. My name's Twig, and I am very happy today to kind of break the radio silence from this project, which has gone on far too long and yet was necessary. And today I'm here to share a special episode for you with you. A little catch-up tracking Twig moment here as we begin. Some of you are going to be very curious. Where has he been? What's been going on? Why, why did Twig disappear? And the fact of the matter is that I had my own life challenges that I had to deal with, some of them fairly major, and they consumed my attention for the last 18 months. Fortunately, I have been pursuing a path of diligence and step-by-step, just, I'm going to change this. This is going to change. I'm going to make things different than this. And it has not been easy, and yet I have it feels been successful, or at least uh, at this point I feel safer in the world, and um, that helps me to continue with the work that I do. Sure enough, I can also say and share with you that a recent relaunching of one of my SE programs online, Twig's Where to Start program for SE practitioners, that's actually... um, had a major influence on my well-being today and my ability to return to the microphone and stop swinging a hammer, as I've been doing for the last little while. Uh, You swing a hammer for for a job, uh, to be clear. So then, in returning, that's uh, actually the episode I'm going to share with you today. I am relaunching my Where to Start program. It can be now, it can be found now at twigsesereflections.com, which some of you may have noticed, the podcast and all of my SE practitioner-relevant material has moved from its former home, liberationispossible.org, and it has moved to a specific site for SE practitioners, this site called sereflections.com, where you can find all of the archives from the last 100 episodes of the podcast, including or in addition to that, also interviews and various different video clips and my work on the polyvagal theory to date is there as well, along with two paid programs, one called Twig's Where to Start Guide for SE Practitioners, uh, suggested protocol and pattern for introducing SE to new clients so that you can get the initial conditions going in the right direction and have successful sessions as you move along. The other, a uh, very extensive review of the SE language and how we speak to clients and ask questions and direct attention through the use of our questions and mitigate the scale and scope of our questions so that they are easier for clients to respond to when that's appropriate. All of that can be found in Twig's Guide to the SE Language all found on twigsesereflections.com. It just sereflections.com will get you there. This podcast episode that I have to share with you today is actually the 
initial recording for the Where to Start program, which includes a podcast audio series like this, although that will be reserved just for participants of that program. However, I'm going to share the first episode with you today. I think it's valuable for the podcast Twigsessy Reflections here, as well as a good way for you to know what I'm up to in that way. As I fix my revenue issues and stabilize my world and my economy, I fully intend to return to this project, this Creative Commons project for SE practitioners and be adding, I will be adding new recordings as the time goes on. For the immediate future, I'll go ahead and continue to work on this Where to Start program found in the Offerings tab at sereflections.com. Okay, I'm wishing you well out there. I've missed you, but I've also seen you. I've been assisting at Advanced in the U.S. a couple times in the last year, seen some of you there. Certainly had consultations with many of you. Not everybody, of course, not at all. There are plenty of good people to go get consultation from. I am also available for that, and I've enjoyed my conversations with some of you over the last year or two. And of course, I'm always looking forward to when we'll engage again in person. For now, here's another recording of me talking to us and uh, cheering us on. Okay, take good care. Bye for now. Greetings to you, Where to Start participants out there in SE land. This is Twig, and this is episode one of the podcast that goes along with the Where to Start program at sereflections.com with Anthony Twig Wheeler. I am really happy to have this moment to talk with you and to share my gratitude and enthusiasm for your participation in this program. Where to Start started as a workshop that I initially titled Positive Deviancy SE. And I learned about Positive Deviancy from an SE colleague of mine, a friend back in Los Angeles, actually. He's from New York. His name is David Murphy. Some of you may know him. Lovely fella. We were stuck in traffic on the Los Angeles freeway after doing an intermediate two training, intermediate one training with Raja Selvman. And in this traffic moment of the LA freeway, we were talking about the various different desires that we had to see somatic experiencing become a worldwide phenomena where people everywhere, all of us sharing the same biology, all of us sharing very similar stress dynamics in the modern world, could be given the opportunity to relieve the accumulated stress and trauma of our age and in our own physical and physiological experience, improve the experience of living on this planet, which I imagine you, like David and I, really want the opportunity to engage with fully. Well, while we were sitting there on the freeway and uh, I was discussing ideas about how to spread the notion of SE to a wider group of people, David mentioned this idea of a positive deviancy approach to helping groups of people learn how to do things better. Well, I took that notion that he said, the positive deviancy, and I'm going to 
describe it just a little bit more, and you'll hear me describe it more inside the where to start material. But I, I want to name it because I then looked into it and found out that it's a major force out there in what's called the development world, where people go from one country or another where things are working better, or one area of a country where things are going okay, and they go in to do development work helping folks that are having a harder time. Uh, this often happens in Africa, in the South, in what's called the Global South, and South America, and South Asia, and such. And I had a chance, an opportunity, to work with some of these folks in the Democratic Republic of Congo, where I came as an SE consultant to work with a grassroots movement there in Eastern DRC back in 2008 and 2009. And while they didn't call it this, I immediately saw as I went to Congo that the people that I was working with were following what is known as a deviancy, a positive deviancy approach to development. The notion of that being that in any group where there's challenge, this could be true in a group that's not challenged as well, but we'll take it as that as the important piece here. In any group that is challenged, there's a spectrum of difference between folks who are handling the situation better and those that are handling the situation um, not as well. And oftentimes, the folks that are handling it better are doing things. There's something happening for them. It's not just blind luck or fate or the will of the wind or the will of the wisp. It's that they're actively taking some kind of step or multiple steps in their behavior, in their interactions, in their economy, in how many hours a night they go to sleep, how what kind of food they eat, perhaps, as is a good example from the positive deviancy development world, people who are in poverty, who save their vegetable scraps and then boil those into their own soup, they give their children more nutrition than those who take those same scraps and throw them into the compost or rubbish pile. That is a deviancy from the norm, or when that's a deviancy from the norm, and when that's positive, we could call that a positive deviancy. When most people aren't saving their vegetable scraps to make that soup, and yet most people are malnourished and need more nourishment, those who are doing that task who are putting their attention toward getting any type of nutrition that they can, they're improving their situation, and that's a positive step. In the development world, a lot of folks practice a style of development where you just kind of come in with a great idea that's hatched in some boardroom, some far-off place, and say, okay, this is what we're going to do for these people. Whereas with a positive deviancy approach, what you do is you you come in without knowing what the local people need to do in order to improve their situation. Instead, you come in and you ask them, either by direct query or investigation of seeing who's doing better here inside of the same context, inside of the same situation as other folks, and what are they doing that is different. If those different elements can be identified and the ones that can be reproduced can be shared with the rest of the community, we can kind of 
raise the capacity of the entire community to have that positive end. Well, that, that conversation with David happened back in 2004, and I was in Congo in 2008, and all of that time I was working on this same notion, the same question, with somatic experiencing there are undoubtedly sessions that go better. I mean, that's the best way to say it. I mean, it's the only way to say it. I mean, it's not the only way to say it, but it is definitely a true way to say it. From the observation of any of us, we could see that some sessions clearly go better and some sessions just don't go where we want them to go. Don't go where the client wants them to go. Nothing in the universe is asking for this session to be so hmm, wayward and unproductive. And yet, well, that might not be true. Maybe some functions in the universe, like the things that bring us together and the accumulated stress in the room and whatnot, maybe that is calling for those sessions to be stalled and herky-jerky. And yet, at the same time, we all want something more positive to happen. That's what we're after. And yet, if certain attributes, certain capacities, certain necessities are not present in a session space with a client, if the practitioner essentially doesn't know what they're doing yet, it's unlikely to lead to a really smooth SE session. If the client is completely uninformed and unparticipatory and uninterested in the process, no matter how good the practitioner is, it's very unlikely for this session to really be smooth and enjoyable for everybody. There's a certain kind of coming together of both the practitioner's capacity, awareness of the stress response, awareness of the somatic experiencing interventions and requests and guidance that would help that stress response to do something different than what it typically does for a person in their daily life. There's a certain amount of awareness of all of those dynamics needed in the practitioner to pull off a smooth, positive, productive SE session, something that in the Where to Start material I tend to call the magic session, which we definitely see at times in demonstrations, in triad experiences and practices with our colleagues, and with particular clients that might come in from the real world into our session space, whether that's at an agency or in private practice or just on the street at the right moment when we see somebody fall and we come over and we do our best to help and we find out in the right context Either the accident just happened, the upset just took place, and the stress response is active and with the proper, appropriate engagement and support from somebody, even a stranger, that process can move through and it can feel and look just like magic. Of course, it's actually just biology. It's, you know, just is a funny word there, but it it's actually just the nature of things that in mammals the stress response is meant to have this arousal cycle this activation cycle 
and then a deactivation phase, and with appropriate safety and the right context and the right participation and permission, that deactivation phase feels and looks just like magic because it literally resolves the stress response for people in the moment. They feel it happening. I don't feel as worked up. I don't, in fact, if I just went through a bad thing and I got through the stress response on the backside of it, I might actually feel amazingly good. Like I'm alive. I got through that and it can actually be remarkably positive to go through the stress response in that way. We see that magic session with clients in certain contexts and with certain clients who are either because the stress response is somehow active and we're able to join with them and help them to see it, or perhaps they're prepared by other work that they've done with other therapists, by books that they've read, by self-inquiry that they've done, by spiritual tradition that helped them to become more attentive to their experience, by any number of preconditions and preparations, some clients come in and they're more ready to have a positive, productive, magic-style session. Magic session should be kind of tongue-in-cheek here, right? It's just like the next level of ability for us to feel that this happens without the conflict that stops it from being allowed to happen. The more of that flow of allowance and participation and pendulation and change in the session, the more it feels like magic. On the other side, we're all completely aware of, hmm, that doesn't happen all the time. You know, you could be in your office, you can be in your agency, you can be out on the street, and you can do your best to help somebody who's in distress, who's chronically in distress, who in this moment is in distress but doesn't know how or isn't able to ride with the experience of change of that moving through, even as uncomfortable as that can be. It can be part of what is necessary to allow the stress response to come to its deactivation and resolving stage. If these attributes, as I'm going to call them in the Where to Start program, aren't present, if a client doesn't have sufficient curiosity for the experience that they're feeling, if a person doesn't have a particular amount of patience for the feelings that they're having, if a person doesn't have a certain amount of investment in being in the room with you, they're unlikely to answer your questions. They're unlikely to put their attention in the direction at which your questions are trying to lead them. If a client doesn't trust you enough, doesn't trust the process enough, if a client is kind of essentially made to come sit in your office with you and is therefore not signed up for the desire to change something that they've got going, they haven't really acknowledge the problem state that they have, that other people are saying, you really need to go fix this. And maybe even some part of them are saying, I really need to go fix this. But then in the moment, they're like, I don't have a problem. I had to come because she told me to come. If these attributes are lacking, if they're insufficient, if, uh, if a client really just doesn't care, or is scared by the experience, or is um, predisposed to thinking of the experience in a way that is unhelpful to your offerings, such as a kind of mindfulness where they 
overly pay attention to any one single element of their experience and unintentionally and often unwittingly kind of stop pendulation unintentionally but then causing a very much an equanimous and flat kind of experience in themselves which can be perceived as calm as it's happening but then from a pendulation perspective can be seen as just kind of putting the brakes on experience changing if this if these kinds of attributes are insufficient the practitioner needs to be that much more sophisticated needs to be that much more deft at helping to direct and organize and kind of like uh, curtail or curt cut somebody's attention in one direction and move it in another direction and it takes a lot of savvy to work with somebody who's less interested, less prepared, less involved in the process. In that way, I think we could say that there's like a, a positive deviancy element here that says, yeah, in a group of SE sessions, there's some subset of those sessions that are going better objectively, or at least subjectively, people who were witnessing that, participating with that would say, yeah, that was better. That was better than this other subset. I would suspect that other subset being larger where, oh, wow, you know, these sessions, this feels challenging. This doesn't feel like it's doing anything of help. This doesn't feel like it's really, quote, setting the hook, unquote, where the attention is just like, yeah, that was interesting. Kind of want more of that. Can we, can we try more of that? If we don't have that anticipation for the next engagement, like we're coming to the office and it's more of a worry, clients on their way and they're preoccupied about the bad things that they're going to be feeling and talking about rather than the anticipation that the bad things that they're often feeling and thinking about are going to find some quality or some step toward resolution and relief. In that subset where things are more challenging, which I suspect is larger, the practitioner, you know, you're, you're, we're kind of left with like, well, what do we do? You know, what do we do? And so in this positive deviancy approach, the thing is to identify what's going well in those positive sessions, even if they're deviant to the norm, in those positive sessions and say, which of these attributes that are present in these sessions that are smooth and working and magical almost, which of these attributes could be identified, um, replicated, expressed and explained in such a way that somebody else who doesn't have those attributes already, who's not inclined toward them, how can we help them cultivate those attributes so that when we ask and try to do, quote, SE with somebody, and we ask them SE-style questions and try and move their attention in ways that would help them to get involved with the felt sense experience of their stress response, but not in an overly threatened way where their organism would try to balk and get away from that experience, but instead feel safe enough and even perhaps interesting enough and enjoyable enough to say, well, I can handle that. I want more. Let's try more of that. Which of those attributes could be reproduced, shared, and then 
have the more challenged sessions become more like what we're all hoping for, what everybody in the room is hoping for, that this time that our money spent, that our engagement with an activity related to the fact that I feel in a way that I don't want to feel anymore. So how can I get to that place where I don't feel this anymore or don't feel it in the same way where we can make those kinds of changes happen for somebody? Positive deviancy. That's where this material started was looking at that. And a time that I was in Brazil, about 2007, 2008, I was working with some Brazilian SE practitioners down there. And I was talking with them about this idea and the, the impression I had, which I've had ever since, I think I probably already had it by then, but I definitely had this in these conversations, was that people had gone through the training, very important to them. And they could all say that, not... Not everybody feels the same warm, fuzzy feeling about the entirety of the SE training, but in the norm, anybody who kind of goes through it says, yeah, this held my attention long enough for me to spend all this money and time over these three years, and I want to be able to use this material, this, these activities, these forms of attention, this guidance process with the people that I work with in the world and help them have similar kinds of experiences to what I've experienced and witnessed while in the training, this training that's held my attention for these three years. And I talked with a lot of people, I, I have since then as well, who go through the entire training, feel that warm, fuzzy appreciation for the work, and then maybe get out into their practices and they say, well, I don't even know where to start. I try and do the things that I do in the training and my clients in the real world, they don't respond in the same way. What, what, what to do? You know, I, I think most people try more, maybe try harder. Well, what do you feel now? Well, what if I ask it this way? What do you feel now? What if I ask it in the exact same way? What if I ask it almost just over and over again? Um, what, what do you become aware of your body now? What do, you, what do you notice now? And to find out that people don't increase their participation with that increased desire to help from the SE practitioner and that increased utilization of the same kind of lines that we functionally and successfully use when we are speaking with an informed SE client, as we do when we're in the training, talking with a colleague, or we're watching a demonstration, and we're watching a seasoned practitioner work with somebody who has already received a lot of SE information, and they are invested and informed in a way that most clients just never will be, and certainly aren't when they first come to see us. It seems to me that all too often, the average SE practitioner then just gives up. Gives up, like just says, okay, well, look, you know, it's like, it's great when Peter does it. It's great when my teacher does it. It's great when I do it with my colleagues and my friends. 
maybe it'd be great with just the right prepared client who comes in and says, well, I've read the book and I did a bunch of sessions when I was living in this place and kind of really got a lot out of it and I want to do more of it and I found you, you know, maybe a real prepared situation allows the practitioner who's a little bit lost in how to apply what they've learned in such a broad field of information as is the training. It's not so simple once you get a little into it. It's got a lot of different dynamics. You have to deal with a lot of different kinds of people who are feeling lots of different kinds of things, who have lots of different kinds of ways to react to the ways that they're feeling. I think without that ideal client, a lot of SE practitioners, they return to what they had already been doing before, perhaps with more influence from SE, but they don't really feel confident in the sense of like, I'm looking for the way that this reflects the person's nervous system state and the repetitive nature of the stress response influencing their behavior. I'm going to see those repetitive experiences and I'm going to predict and project that there's some kind of unresolved relationship of the stress response in here that the person returns to a freeze immobility response to stimulus and challenge in the world unnecessarily, as though their nervous system is almost predisposed to freezing and immobilizing. And I'm going to help them resolve that sense of needing to freeze and help that immobilization transition into more mobilized behavior and then find out that when future challenge happens for this person, they go into it with like, okay, what's, a, what's the right response this time? And not even as a cognitive act, their body simply allows them to respond to a novelty, a new challenge with spontaneity and more appropriate behavior. I remember as an example, just, just to give that example, let me give this example. I, I studied, as many of you know, very closely and deeply with Stephen Hoskinson, who's now gone on to do his own organic intelligence modality. But at the time, I was learning SE from him. I was an understudy, and I would spend as much time with him as I could. And I was in San Diego at one moment and went for a jog. I was actually staying at Stephen's house for the weekend. And I went for a jog in the morning. I was a runner at the time. Could be again, I hope. I was running, and as I ran down the block in this lovely neighborhood above the sea, I was accosted or attacked or uh, somehow, yeah, I was definitely challenged by a dog that suddenly ran around this house. I had no idea this was going to happen. This dog ran around this house and just jumped, just in huge leaps, just racing toward me, just racing toward me. I could see its teeth. This animal was just mad and coming at me, and there was no question that I was in danger. And amongst all the different responses that I could have had and would have had in the past and such, the one that came out at that moment took my attention. It completely took my attention because I turned and ran at that dog and my face got so angry and my teeth bared themselves and my voice came right up 
and I could not believe this in the moment, but it happened just this way. That dog saw me coming at it as it was coming at me, and it turned just in a flash. It turned and ran away, ran back around the house. Now, you know, I don't know what you could say. Like, well, you know, the dog was just kind of anxiety provoked and it was just doing its thing. It was kind of like, you know, person running, going to chase it. Now a little different thing than the dog expected. And now it's afraid and now it's running away. And all I had to do was do something different than what it expected. I don't know. What I do know is that as I watched the dog run away and then started to jog off and felt my heart beating out of my chest and all the fear just kind of flushing through my body and such, I had this thought. Oh, it's working. It's totally working. I'm going to have spontaneous, appropriate reactions to the dangers that come toward me in the future as compared to repeating my same behavioral sets of freeze or always going to aggression or always going to fear or always going to shut down or some kind of combination amongst those with every dissimilar stressor that might come to me simply because my biology before this, before SE, before Stephen's guidance and Peter's guidance as well, before all of those changes happened where I would just kind of repeat the same kind of response to just about every kind of danger. I don't know what I would have done in the past when that dog chased me. I probably would have run away, probably would not have frozen in that moment. I probably would have turned and run maybe across the street. Maybe I would have stopped and tried to pick up a rock, which was a technique that I'd heard about, perhaps. Even pretending like you're picking up a rock will often kind of scare a dog to think that you're going to throw a rock at them if they've been exposed to that before. That would have required me to think a lot in that moment. I didn't have very much time to think. This was a completely spontaneous reaction of a very immediate situation. And my organism just responded in a way that I was so impressed with. It didn't happen then, but sometime further down the line, I was like, uh, coming up with a little song. I had a little song. I still have it. It goes something like, there's nothing bad that's going to happen that I'm not going to be able to respond to. Bad things are going to happen, but there's nothing bad in it that I'm not going to be able to respond to as best as I possibly can. That is not something I would have been able to say before all my SE sessions. Not at all. And it's certainly not what happens out there for our clients. They feel like something bad is going to happen. It's going to be worse like it was last time. And it's just going to compound rather than when the stress response happens in my life, I let that kind of do the effort and magic that it's trying to do to protect me. And it's going to be as okay as it possibly can because my body, my organism, my being is going to do the best it can to respond to this situation. In that way, the SE practitioner is kind of looking inside of people's content, inside of people's narrative, inside of their complaint. What's the unresolved part of the stress response here that is compelling a person to reenact or behave again in the same way that they've behaved before, even though this 
particular new challenge or any new challenge that may come may want may want for a very different kind of response and if they could they would want to respond in some different kind of way but because of their nervous system's repetitious behavior around certain kinds of reactions they're unable to do that it's more like we're just a conditioned i go into freeze i go into fight i go into flight or some kind of combination between those if we're in here then in our sessions in our lives in our work looking for people's unresolved material and listening for their hints about what their struggles in the world indicate about their incomplete self-protective responses, their incomplete stress response, their conditioned nervous system behavior that limits and curtails their appropriate or spontaneous behavioral repertoire because their nervous system is more or less always tuned or repeating or easily going back to certain nervous system, kind of what Stephen Porges might call a behavioral platform where their sympathetic nervous system is guiding their behavior when it's may, maybe appropriate, but maybe inappropriate. That's what definitely what we're describing here. Or their dorsal vagal system is responding even when there's lots of range to respond before it's necessary to shut down we're looking for this we're looking for these things and then we're going to try to find a way to help people resolve it pay attention to it pay attention to parts of it that allow it to find this quality of resolution to do that we need these attributes in the room so that that task can be successful rather than one more experience that drives the same kinds of reactions that the person has already been responding to the world through. We don't need them, they don't need to be responding to us and to our requests in the same way that they're already responding to the other challenges we want and we hope for and we're looking for them to be able to have a new experience with their stress response so that they can start to be cultivating a different kind of conditioning than the one that they're already quote conditioned to we're looking to help people feel similar things but have a different response to it so that as they go into their lives their body is not saying see it's always the same it just does this instead it's like well I'm now projecting, but it's something like, I don't know what's going to happen. We're going to find out. Let's find out what happens next. I'm okay right now to find out what happens next. That kind of participation, that quality of appreciation of safety, enough safety to be able to participate with the process, those are kind of these attributes that if they're in a session environment, if they're in the therapeutic alliance between you and your client, there's a lot of hope. There's a lot of hope. There's a lot of reason to have finished the training, to stick with it for three years, to spend all that time and money, to try this out with clients. There's a lot of hope that these people, 
you, your clients, your family, people that are actively and have been actively in distress perhaps for years, feeling like this is never going to change. This is always the way it's going to be. I'm stuck with this. I'm just burdened with this. Why have I been beset and forsaken in this way? These people, our clients, the world, us, modern humans, don't have to have that. Our nervous systems are essentially the same as our ancestors. Essentially the exact same as our ancestors. You pick us up, drop us in what's called the ancestral environment, hunter-gatherer life, foraging life, small band life. Mm -hmm. Do it young enough. You're going to learn all the idiosyncrasies of the local culture. You're going to learn all the plants. You're going to learn the animals. You're going to be able to track the critters. And you're going to have the same nervous system, the same capacities that ours have. But in that context, you're going to feel amazing. You're going to feel like you can run, average running for a hunter-gatherer in the Kung people in South Africa, Botswana, that area, 19 miles a day. I don't run 19 miles a day. I've been a runner. I've always imagined as I was running that my I could run like my ancestors did, ease and alacrity at the end of the day, legs still supple, can do it tomorrow if I needed to. Ah, it's a, it's a lovely dream. It's a high measure of resiliency what our ancestors have. And for us, well, we have you know we have all this turbulence, and we definitely have this sedentary culture. So it's not it's not surprising that we're not runners in that way. And yet, the nervous system capacity for the arousal cycle, for the activation cycle, for the settling, for the prosocial behavior, all of that's just in place for us. It's just in place for us, and it's waiting for appropriate signals, appropriate biological signals, psychobiological signals that have everything to do with whether or not our nervous system is going to feel the allowance and safety, the sufficient conditions that give us the opportunity to complete the stress response. Maybe a good example of that is the cultural form that allows you to feel what you're feeling as compared to the admonition that says, don't feel that, whether that admonition is self-imposed or like the environment, somebody in the environment says, don't cry like that. Of course, for it to become self-imposed, it's almost assuredly experienced from the environment before causing the conditioning that says, okay, this isn't allowed. Because our animal organisms, just like all the other mammals on the planet, which just a cheer for Peter Levine noticing that other animals are actively, naturally, regularly completing the stress response through the day, through the night, through their petite little stress responses. You startle a deer in the forest and it's going to move right through this cycle. Now, you're not going to see it because you don't have the patience to sit there and wait longer than the deer has the patience to sit there and wait, waiting for you to move on. But you aren't close enough. You aren't aware enough in the deer's awareness. You aren't there enough. You just startled the deer. Maybe you got to see it from afar. You got to see it from afar. The deer startles, orients, waits a moment, realizes it can't identify the threat, but the threat doesn't continue. You don't make another sound. You don't move. You're just watching. You're going to see that critter have a moment of a little ripple that's going to move through it. 
You're going to see its breath change. You're going to see it kind of look around, and you're going to see it go back to eating, go back to walking, go back to its free behavior. The stress response is going to resolve. And all of those little petite moving through the arousal cycle experiences that mammals do is the same thing that they do when that becomes a big chase and they're flying through the forest and there's a cougar behind them and they manage to get away, which we have to point out on this planet, most of the time, that's what happens. We get away. It's not that that is what should always happen. Of course, mammals, other animals need to eat. And so in predator-prey dynamics, predators do win sometimes. They do eat, at least often enough, to have keep the species going. But they don't win all the time, and therefore there's got to be some kind of way for these deer, for these antelope, for all the critters out there that are getting chased, rabbits, humans, for this process to stop controlling and directing this critter's behavior. It's just costly to have the physiology and the biology of the stress response happening when it is not necessary. It just won't do to live on this planet, particularly in the context of natural selection, like out in the field. Won't do to be sitting there just like, oh gosh, oh gosh, what about what about the coyote? What about the coyote? When the coyote is not actively chasing you. And other animals, as do us, our animals, us in the sense that we are animals and have this same nervous system that our ancestors had, that other critters have, has this expectation of completion. And with the appropriate signals of safety, sufficient allowance for this process to take place and such, the stress response is, quote, designed, unquote, in order to complete itself and return to the physiology that allows us to feel both most at ease and also most aware and also most spontaneous in our reaction to the next unknown challenge that when it, when it comes, we get to respond both with the incorporation of actions and activities that we've taken in the past that has grown and built our resiliency and our behavioral repertoire so that as we grow older, we know not just cognitively, but base movement patterns are more elaborate so that our response will be more successful. One major reason why as a teenager and then as an adult, we feel like we're able to handle challenge and stress better than we do when we're infants and when we're toddlers and when we're children and we haven't both the strength nor the behavioral repertoire to handle all of the different challenges that might come our way. These things grow over time, get incorporated, and get used ideally in a spontaneous combination that is appropriate to the stressor as it comes rather than this repetitive notion that comes along with accumulated stress where the same kinds of responses happen and they may not be helpful for this situation at all. And yet there's a lot of hope that that doesn't need to continue for people. If somewhere, somehow, 
they can be exposed to these appropriate signals that their biology is literally waiting to receive. And with that reception, their bodies, our bodies, your body, my body has, and will again, I'm absolutely sure of that, complete this very, very important and helpful biological process that has helped critters to live on this planet and couldn't live without. Other things want to eat us, not because it's all just terrible all the time and you have to be watching over your shoulder because you're about to die, but because at some point something might happen. And when that happens, you need to be able to get up and go. You need to be able to bar your teeth and fight back. And in the proper, appropriate moments, you need to just be able to crash to the floor and pretend that you don't exist without even intending to do it. And you don't want to stay there. Nobody wants to stay there. We don't want to stay there. Our clients and uh, everybody who won't become our clients, who are burdened by this sense of accumulated stress and repetitive behavior and the stress response going off and just kind of, I walk into the grocery store and I just feel anxious. It's like, well, you know, the lights in those places, they make people go crazy. So you got to give something to the environment. But if it's that my organism is going off unnecessarily and I can't get through the daily practice and daily life that either other people are clearly able to do or a lot of us just should be able to do, but we can't. We're all kind of just waiting. <laughs> a turbulent waiting, a terrible waiting, a a day in and day out just getting punched in the gut or having the chest feel like it's going to heave, like just terrible waiting. But nevertheless, waiting for something that is a birthright, waiting for something that our ancestors had, a sufficient safety after dangers that would allow the stress response to complete, for the person to go off into the next day with more ease and awareness returned so that they can have their free attention to live their lives with their people and do good work as a hunter-gatherer, which takes a lot of attention. Our, we're, we're, we're the same. Same nervous system, just waiting for those conditions. And it just so happens, dear listener, that you, for whatever beautiful story you've got going that led you here your childhood drove you into therapy oh you thought in college it'd be a good job somebody said you'd be good at it you decided to like change your career and become a therapist I don't know but eventually somehow you ended up in this situation where not only are you a helping care professional but you're a somatically experienced trained helping care professional, and you have these awarenesses about how our biology and the stress response influences people's behavior and limits their access to well-being, or that stress response and the experience of its elements, fearful thoughts, challenging images, painful sensations, 
are able to pendulate inside of the person's experience and not simply reiterate and repeat and get stuck, but instead, quote, move through, unquote. You, you happen to know about these things, which, if I can say, it just makes me rock and feel the joy of what might be possible between you and your ability to help all these other animals, let's call them people, who are walking around going like, what about the coyote? What about the coyote? And you're in that room at times. Maybe you do that three times a week. Maybe you do it six times a day. Maybe you're just a nonstop, I'm trying my best, and I'm over and over and over working, and I, I, I'm in some kind of situation. I see like 10 people, 20 people a day. I don't know what you're doing. You're at some point. I mean, you got into this program, right? You're invested. You're involved. You're interested. You're trying this. You're doing this. You're meeting with these people who are waiting. They don't know it. They're waiting. For the appropriate conditions and signals that will tell their biology it's safe enough to allow these things to move inside. It's safe enough to allow yourself to see what happens next. It's safe enough for these incomplete self-protective responses, these incomplete feeling states, these different conditioned, this feels bad, I should try and stop it responses to help those change and move through and resolve themselves to where the person gets the birthright that they were anticipating when they came into this good green world. To be able to freely orient to what's here, to be able to spontaneously respond, and then to find out what they could do in a world where they just felt freer to move and felt freer to respond to the challenges that will come their way in the best way that they can in that moment or at that time. And here's my imagination of you. It's frustrating. It's scary. It's challenging. And it's often not working the way it's supposed to. The way you've seen it work with other people, the way you felt it work for yourself in your own sessions, the way you've managed to help happen in the training with one of your fellow students who maybe you two didn't really get along so well, but you were in a triad and by the end of the session it was just kind of like, wow, felt like you were really with me. It was like that really worked. Wow, I feel really different now. Even with that kind of challenge, that interpersonal dynamic that can come when you know somebody that you're just like, well, this is like, we're not really like in the same club together here, but we're doing this thing and now we're in this triad and let's at least recognize that not all of our clients are we going to really get along with, but we're going to really need to provide these same kinds of safety signals as best we can. And that's my imagination. It's not, it's not the imagination I want. I want, I want like, yeah, you took the training, you ponied up on the money, 
You flew across the country. You know all these people. You keep in touch with your colleagues and your friends that you met in the training. You share success stories. That, that's my, my little dream for you. You've got what I had for a couple years, just real um, lovely thing. We set up a success consultation group, a group of friends of mine. We just said, look, look let's get together once a week. We'll just talk on Skype for an hour. I'd use Zoom nowadays, i got to tell you that. But we just talk for an hour and, and say, um, what have you found that's been really working? Tell us about your successes. We're, we're blue vortex, counter vortex oriented folks. There's no question. But we were also like, yeah, let's just notice how good this can be. We're spending a lot of time sharing how did we get to where we want to go together. That's my desired imagination. And, you know, if that's you, if you're, if you're just like, yeah, man, I picked up this work and I go out and I help people and just I have these really smooth sessions and people come in and they got all this wayward attention and pretty distressed, but I just, just kind of see the nervous system dynamics in there and I just kind of talk to them in just the right way and kind of put aside some of the objection about what's happening and move through these weird feelings they have and sometimes they get kind of nauseous but then a little lightheaded but then that kind of starts to fade and maybe their their throat gets a little tight but then they notice some tingling in their arms and I'm, I'm really deft at like kind of listening for what's the sign of the next pendulation so I just kind of ask questions in the direction that helps their attention to move toward that next sign and by the end this tingling's coming down their arms and their chest is just breathing, and I can say, wow, it's almost like things uh, might be changing a little bit inside somehow. Do you happen to notice something like that? And they're like, yeah, somehow. I feel different. It's a big deal. Gosh, I feel, it's not like a little different. I feel huge. It's feel, I feel bigger. I, and, and you're here? Are you listening? Did you join Where to Start with me? Because if you did, that that's lovely. Thanks. I, that's great. Because you've got some positive deviancy thing going on that we want to know about. Because I, I, I don't want to project and I certainly don't want to make things feel sad. But I'm too well aware that a bunch of you are just like, well, I, you know, it's just about time for me to give up on this. And I don't want you to do that. I don't think you want to do that. Your family doesn't want you to do that. You've invested too much of your family's resources into this. The hope that is still waiting for the world doesn't want you to do that. Your clients don't want you to do that. They might be entirely tired of your questions about what they're feeling. They might really wish you'd stop asking that stupid question, which, in parentheses, 
It is not a stupid question. It just has a time when it is appropriate and is going to work. And without the necessary attributes in the room, that question just feels terrible to people. And so it's important to learn when to use it. And if not yet using it, what needs to be prepared so that when you do use it, it will be successful and feel like it makes sense rather than something that somebody would like to avoid. In parentheses. Your clients don't want you to stop asking that question, not in the big sense. They want you to stop asking that question in the sense that it feels like it is misplaced for them right now. But nobody wants you to give up on this. We want you to get good at this. We want you to get just exquisitely good at providing those safety signals that your client's biology, their very, very natural inclinations that have far, far, far more influence over their behavior than their identified, like, problems and desires to like kind of run their personality to avoid feeling states that they would rather not notice again. That stuff might want us to stop. The deeper, I'm going to, I'm going to say it, organic intelligence inside of our clients is desperately waiting for you to get really, really good at guiding people's attention in these directions and in these ways that will help them move through the cultural challenges and the personal challenges that go along with doing things that our people have not been doing for far too long. Such as riding the stress response and finding that it wants to resolve itself and that we feel different when it does. So, thanks for not yet giving up. Thanks for putting down that notion that you might give up. And instead, thanks for joining me, Anthony Twig Wheeler here, um, for this program, Where to Start. We're going to look at these attributes. We're going to say that there's got to be some of them. I mean, some of these attributes have to be real. If you have a session that works really well and then you have another session that doesn't work really well, it can't just be that this person doesn't know how to do SE. Nobody knew how to, quote, do SE 40 years ago, unquote. But everybody has been waiting for the process that SE guides people through or provides the context and conditions where it's safe enough to return to a process that has literally been around for millions of years. There's no client in your room that can't, quote, do SE. There are plenty of clients in your room that you and them have not yet negotiated the conditions that allow them to successfully engage their attention with the completion of the stress response. That is absolutely true. But it's not because 
they can't do this. It's because we got to get it to where our sophistication is strong enough to support somebody who doesn't have those attributes just as they walk in the door. They're not primed for it yet. They're not ready. They need a little bit of an introduction. They need a little guidance that is specific to the process that you are helping them experience. Rather than just asking, as we naturally would be inclined to do when we become good at something and we get to see it work well, just jumping into the thing that, oh, that's the advanced way to do it. Just ask somebody what they feel. Well, that's the advanced way to do it when you're meeting with somebody who is prepared to answer that question and then participate with the results. If you don't have that in place, just put the question aside. Work your way toward making it so that when you do ask that question or other questions like it, or even the big one, maybe you just let that happen. Maybe you just let that happen and you see without making it more, making it less, or changing it in any intentional way. You just watch it. And you just let it be itself. And you let it yourself notice what happens next. That's the big one. And if you're going to bring somebody into that one, please make sure that they care. Make sure that they're actually paying attention to the thing that you're asking them to watch change. Make sure they actually want to be in the room. We're going to look at these attributes and where to start. We're going to talk about a step-by-step protocol or a plan of introduction that we can take new. We're also going to talk about the challenges, but also the opportunities of doing this with a client that we've been working with for a time. Haven't just gotten the initial conditions going in the right direction right at the beginning, how to fix that. But we're going to be looking at how do we introduce this in a way that people are going to feel successful with it and interested in it and not burdened by the sense of failure or stupidity or incongruence with the fact that they have big, heavy stuff going on. And we realize that for them to have a different reaction with that, We're going to help to help them have different reactions with other things first. Smaller things, things that are not as dangerous, things that are easier for them to feel safe enough with so that they can get more accustomed to the experience of allowing change and stress and challenge and felt sense experience to move through their awareness and notice, oh, wow, this does something and then it changes and then it settles and then I feel different. Oh. I can see how this could grow. Oh, I can do this with other bigger, heavier, unresolved feeling states and challenges and memories to where now it's like, oh, wow, I can see how when I encounter some future stressor, even if that future stressor is a thought about my past, that I will be able to ride the experience that comes through my organism in a way that I don't thwart it, I don't make it more, I don't make it less. I simply am able to appreciate the validity of it, the truth of it, even kind of get into the fact that this is what it feels like to be alive. Sometimes it feels like this.
and then that changes. And on the changing side of being able to rise that, ride that cycle, it's like, wow, not only can I get through challenging times, but then I can also feel more enjoyment and pleasure and possibility with positive times as well. We're going to look at all this in this program. So grateful that you've signed up for it. You've essentially supported my return to the microphone in a way that my stress response was not allowing me to get to. I'm grateful for that. Thank you. So look, this is the audio part of the program, and I'm going to try to keep as much audio coming your way as I can because I understand that a lot of us are very busy and we don't have a lot of time to just sit in front of the computer and watch videos to learn things all the time, although that's that's important and helpful in a major part of this program as well. But I'm going to try and create audio things, mostly reflections on any kind of comments and questions that come forward from the program at this point. I do have a few more things that I'd like to share that I'm aware of, but looking forward to answering your questions and putting them in a podcast form like this. I'm also going to take the audio out of the, the major videos that are in the Where to Start library there. I'll take the audio out of those so that you can listen to those and review those just uh, without using more data as an example uh, to watch the videos or to listen to the audio through the video, which would more than less just be using your data. And so we'll just get you some recordings that can be easily downloaded to, say, an iPhone or an Android phone or even your computer or some kind of mobile device of your choice. You could download and then just push play while you're driving or cooking or something like that. And then uh, to the extent that that's of interest to you, just listen to it, repeat it, listen once, whatever. Whatever suits you. It's here for you. Also going to be looking forward to seeing you between December, early December 2018 and March 2019. If you're involved in the program at that time, going to be looking to forward to seeing you on some live online conversations. Be doing those regularly going to use that application Zoom. It works very well now, and I've um, got the, the pro account, as it were, that allows us to have a big group of people come together in that platform, and I'll give a little reflection on something that's come up or some prepared material I already have, and, and then we'll just have a, some questions that uh, somebody somebody's going to have a question, bring a question forward or so. We'll address some questions, and then also we'll just like to have an open conversation between people so that it's not always just like, Twig, what do you think? Because the positive deviancy approach requires that you see that I'm not an expert any more than you could be, that we are all seeing things that help this to work. We're all seeing things that make this challenge and stumble. And our task is to share those positive elements just like I was, uh, I think I was going to tell you about those folks in Congo that I was working with. They were very much doing a positive deviancy approach where they were saying, who in our community is already figuring out a better way to deal with these real problems that we have? And how can we share those solutions with other people so that more of us can do better for ourselves inside of this bad and challenging context? I, I, I saw the most hopeful expression of that in the most challenged part of the world. I'm a, I'm a 
I'm a fan. I'm a believer. So in that way, we're going to have some open conversations where we can all share our observations, both of which challenging because that's, that is important. It's true. But then also, what have you found that's worked? What have you said that worked? Uh, what have you done first that helps somebody be prepared for the next thing to come? What have you held back? What have you had to do in order to hold something back that you wanted to share, but you realized it wasn't yet the moment that that would be successful? So you kind of cultivated some kind of capacity for containing your desire to, quote, do SE in favor of establishing the initial conditions that allow you to be successful when you, quote, do SE. We're going to be doing all of that. That'll be on Zoom and in the Where to Start program, which you clearly have access to if you've been listening to my voice here. You'll find the sign-up for all of those days that are to come. You can join in as many or as little of that as you want. We'll record the salient parts and put that out here in the audio form for you to review as you're baking banana bread or some such. Okay, my friends. As you know by now, I'm Anthony Twig Wheeler. I'm cheering for your success. I'm very glad that we've started this. We'll talk again soon. Bye-bye now. And here's a tracking twig moment, just like the old days, letting you know that the Where to Start program that I've been describing in this last episode that got put into Twig's SE Reflections, which I think we'll call this episode 100. There's actually more than that, but it gets a little tricky sometimes tracking my (laughs) behavior. In any case, this Where to Start program, it has required and... uh, Yeah, it's required a lot of extra work to bring it into its present form, and I'm looking forward to a lot of engagement with folks that are in the study in the months to come. With that, I am raising the price from its previous, and actually as of today, current $125 price to $175, which I'll keep it at for the foreseeable future. That's a good deal. I'll just say that. That's a good deal. It's also short notice for podcast listeners because the price change will happen at like the start of the day, 12 a.m. on December 3rd. So for podcast listeners who get to this point or who hear from somebody else who knows about this, feel free to share it. I will keep a coupon available for a price discount to that 125 up until December 7th. So if you are listening to this episode from Twig's SE Reflections and you decide you want to get in with the Where to Start program, you're welcome at any time. I'm going to keep it alive as long as I can, but it will be at $175 for a while. Probably go up eventually. For now, it's at $125. If you put in the coupon code podcast space listener, that's capital podcast, capital P, podcast, space, capital L, listener, podcast listener, at twigsse reflections.com. That's just sereflections.com. 
and you go to the Where to Start program. You can find that under the Offerings tab in the menu. Go to the Offerings tab in the menu and you will see my online classes. There you'll see the Where to Start program. Click in through there and you'll land on the landing page, the sales page for Where to Start. When you go to check out there, just type in Podcast Listener, capital P, capital L, the space in between those, and that will take the price from 175 down to 125 through December 7th at midnight. Okay, that's that.